What is up, everyone? You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando is not in LA. He's in Miami living it up. Nando, how are you? I'm salsaing down Calle Ocho, you know, that's how we do it in Miami every single day. Every single day, that's what it's all about. But I don't have my books behind me. I don't have my trusted wall of books to make me look smart. I am at my mother's house. Nice, nice. Um, do we have to have a wall of books behind us to sound smart or look smart? I do. Because, uh, okay. You don't. I you doubt don't. it. You I doubt you do. I listen to no, most of I... your content via audio podcast, uh, including That's true. Rose. Yeah. Yeah. You guys sound pretty damn smart. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. If you <laughs> yeah. want to do my, if you want to listen to my non-smart podcast, you can listen to my Entourage podcast, which is incredibly stupid. Um, all the Are time. Are you still doing but... it? We just restarted it. I started it with oh, a new nice. with a new co-host. Uh, by the way, who's also Armenian? I'm like, I told him at no one point, I, like in the middle of an episode, I realized I was like, I do two shows, and both of my co-hosts are Armenian, and so I just can't escape. What are you the guys. chances? What's his name? Greg Manazian. Yeah, definitely Armenian. Minasian. Yeah. That's like as Armenian yeah. as you can get. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, we've got. A pretty fantastic show for you. Uh, today is, of course, the 20th um, anniversary, uh, for lack of a better word, of the uh, tragic events of 9-11. So uh, Nando will be talking about that. Um, I'm going to talk about monopolies in the context of the pharmaceutical industry. And there will be a guest appearance in my Decode segment from uh, Mansion's own daughter, not in the flesh, mm. but we'll be talking about her, oh. um, because she was the CEO of Mylan Pharmaceuticals as she conspired <laughs> to essentially create a monopoly for the EpiPen. Um, so I'll talk about that and also the whole notion about competition and how it's allegedly a good thing uh, you know, for proponents of capitalism, but not necessarily. And uh, later, we're going to interview Adam Tooze about uh, COVID shutdowns. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, economic impact of all of that and more. So I'm really looking forward to it. As always, please send us your super chats throughout the show, and we'll get to them um, after our interview with uh, Tooze. I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say or any of the questions you might have to ask us. Um, but Nando... Do you want to get started with a little discussion about what Biden did yesterday in regard to yes. mandates? Let's do what it. did he do? What did Biden do? Well, look, I got to be honest. I was actually pretty surprised uh, with Biden's willingness to sign an executive order on vaccine yeah. mandates. Now, um, there are some limitations to this mandate. It doesn't uh, it's not a blanket mandate for everybody. So let me give you the details. Uh, so President Joe Biden announced his executive order requiring federal employees and also companies that do contracted work with the federal government to get vaccinated within the next 75 days. There are exceptions for people who uh, might have health concerns uh, as a result of the vaccine or people who might have religious reasons for not getting the vaccine. But outside of that, everyone in the federal government, every employee and, and contracted workers for the federal government are expected to get vaccinated in 75 days. Here's Biden talking about it during his press conference to announce this executive order. I will sign an executive order that will now require all executive branch federal employees to be vaccinated, all I've signed another executive order that will require federal contractors to do the same. If you want to work with the federal government and do business with us, get vaccinated. If you want to do business with the federal government, vaccinate your workforce. And tonight, 
I'm removing one of the last remaining obstacles that make it difficult for you to get vaccinated. The Department of Labor will require employers with 100 or more workers to give those workers paid time off to get vaccinated. No one should lose pay in order to get vaccinated or take a loved one to get vaccinated. So, Nando, uh, what are your thoughts uh, about what Biden announced yesterday? I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm generally a pro. I, 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 I generally am pro vaccine mandates. Um, I, I don't see them as like terribly coercive. I mean, I am I am sympathetic to the to the argument that uh, a good chunk, if not the majority of people who are not vaccinated are not like, you know, Trump right wing cranks or uh you know, or woo woo kind of new age type people, but often just very low income people who are very checked out of the system or just have all kinds of difficulties. Like I, I am sympathetic to that. Um, and I am, um, and I would hope that the, that the vaccine mandate comes with, you know, aid for certain people and, and, and things like that. But in principle, I'm not against, uh, vaccine mandates. I mean, and I understand, that the Biden administration had to do something, um, given that something like 1500 people are dying a day from COVID still. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah. it's weird because we've kind of accepted it. It's just kind of washes over us. Um, whereas last year it was around that same number and, uh, and it was like seen as a, as a huge emergency and, you know, and people criticized the Trump administration quite rightly for, um, its lack of response or its lack of doing anything. Whereas, you know the the deaths keep on keep on rolling, but but we don't you know we we don't treat them the same way as it was. I'm not saying it's only because it was Trump and it's been now Biden. I think it's just also a factor of just you know people get used to things over time, and we've just gotten used to it. But I understand that they have to do something. Um, I've always been my position on vaccines has always been the best thing possible would be to pay people to get vaccinated, to, to, to tie it to a certain kind of stimulus, stimulus, um, you know, uh, another round of uh, $1,400 checks, except this time you show up uh, with a vaccine thing and, and you get the $1,400 or whatever, you know, whatever the number may be, um, as well as a, um, a, a loosening of vaccine patents internationally mm-hmm. to allow anyone or any country to manufacture their own vaccines um, as well as, you know, us providing aid and all that stuff to other countries. Because, again, if there's a problem in the United States of people not getting vaccinated, then it's just as much of a problem if people in Angola or wherever are not getting vaccinated, not because they're anti-vaxxers, but because they just don't have the vaccines there. I mean, there's frontline right. workers in, in Africa who just can't get the vaccine. They don't they don't have them there. Um, and that's as much of a problem in a global economy in terms of uh, suppressing this virus. Um, so again, I, the, I think that the protestations from the right about, you know, a new Gestapo or whatever are, um, are hysterical. Um, we have vaccine mandates for all kinds of other things. Like the legality of them are pretty obviously, um, it's pretty obvious that, that they, that they exist. Um, I don't see it as a hugely coercive thing. I mean, I, I, as I, as I understand it, even this, even this quote unquote vaccine mandate allows for people who don't want to get vaccinated to get tested once a week, which also doesn't seem like terribly coercive in the context of a global pandemic. Like if we can't right. ask people to do anything, if the government can't, if anything that the government asks people to do is coercion, then we can't ask people to do anything. You know, um, I think yep. in the context of a global pandemic where thousands of people in the United States are dying every single day, asking people to do something is 
is reasonable. <laughs> you know, I don't see right, it as, right. as a new a new form of fascism. Right. I mean, I yeah, I 100 percent agree with vaccine mandates. Uh, we've had vaccine mandates for quite some time now. I remember, you know, my mom having to show my vaccination papers to uh, the administrators at the LAUSD before I was admitted or enrolled in the school system. So I had to be vaccinated against polio, tetanus. There were other vaccines that I can't even remember at this point. Um, But the idea isn't like, I think the problem is, you know, we've been conditioned in America to think of everything in terms of the individual as opposed to the collective, right? And I mean, that's very much intentional. But when it comes to a contagious virus and a global pandemic, that's the exact kind of thinking that puts you at quite a disadvantage, right? And unfortunately, everything related to COVID from the very beginning was uh, politicized as part of this culture war. And that's the incredibly frustrating part, right? Where people are encouraged to not think about this logically, but to think about this as an identity issue, um, as something that, you know, separates you from the libs if you're a conservative. Um, And it's it's been frustrating from the jump. But I will say, um, in terms of federal employees and uh, workers who are contracted to work with the federal government, all of them have to get vaccinated. It's a mandate. So there is no, all right, well, you can get tested every week instead. Um, there are very few exceptions. As I mentioned, there's the religious exception, or if you have um, certain health issues uh, that would prevent you from getting the vaccine, those are the exceptions in place. However, um, OSHA has also gotten involved and uh, they're you know, having an impact on private companies with employees of 100 or, and more So what Biden mentioned in the tail end of that clip is so important. And I think it's honestly the little talked about issue in the corporate media. I've heard, you know, Ben Burgess bring this up. You kind of, um, you know, lightly touched on it. It's the issue of people who don't have the luxury of taking time off of work to both get the vaccine, but also to recover from the vaccine, right? So um, most people that I've heard from, um, myself included, by the way, had like about a 24-hour period where you're kind of like not feeling so great. You're a little under the weather, right? For me, it lasted 24 hours and then I was good to go. But, you know, I remember I got vaccinated my second shot on a Friday and, uh, you know, Jacobin gave me the next day off uh, yes. because are they not Thank merciful? you, Commissar right. Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. And um, it, same would have been the situation with TYT. If I need to take a day off, you know, um, I'm not going to worry about losing uh, pay as a result of that. But a lot of Americans don't have that. Uh, they should have that, but they don't have that. And so what Biden mentioned in the tail end of that clip is, uh, no, you must give your employees time off um, to get vaccinated, which is great. The other thing is the expansive rules uh, mandate that all employers with more than 100 workers require them to be vaccinated or test for the virus weekly, affecting 80 million Americans and the roughly 17 million workers at health facilities that receive federal Medicare or Medicaid also have to be fully vaccinated. Um, so yeah. there's like a two-tiered system, I guess. Um, if you're a private employer you do get to give your employees an option, but if they choose not to get vaccinated, they have to get tested every week. But if you work for the federal government, uh, you must be vaccinated with few exceptions. Well, the other thing, what, what, what I'm, you know, you're mentioning the, um, the need for employers to give people time off. 
the other, I mean, the, the, the sad reality is that there's a lot of people in America who have quote unquote employers, but they, they're, they're gig workers. Um, yeah. so they're, they're in a way they're technically self-employed. Um, they can take as much time off as they want, but then that means that means they're not getting paid. It's not like they're getting paid time off. Um, that's why I think some tying it to some form of stimulus, I would, I would love to see that happen. This, I don't think it's going to happen, but that's why, that's why tying it to some form of stimulus would actually be the fairest way to do it, especially given the reality of the modern economy in which there's a huge chunk of the workforce um, that is, uh, that is self-employed. And if they're not working, they're not earning money. Um, so, so th- that's just another aspect. Like, yeah, I mean, Uber's gonna be like, yeah, sure. Take, take the day off Uber driver. We're not going to pay you anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Exactly. No, that's a great point about gig workers. And I, I was reading about how much the gig economy has really exploded, which is depressing. Um, and one of the more recent stats shows that one in three American workers are now part of the gig economy. So it gives it, yeah, I think the point you make about tying the vaccine to, um, a stimulus, I think that would be far more effective, uh, but there just isn't the willpower to do it um, in Congress. I don't I don't think that Biden can do that through executive order. I'm not 100 percent sure, um, but I think that would be a better strategy. And to your point, look, the numbers of new covid cases has really shot up. Um, the U.S. is seeing about 300 percent more covid-19 infections a day, about two and a half times more hospitalizations and nearly twice the number of deaths compared to the same time last year. Some 80 million people remain unvaccinated. So to your point, Nando, um, you know, you mentioned uh, how many people are dying a day. So Recently, the numbers have shot up even more. But if you look at like the last month on average, about a thousand people are dying a day and you have, I can't even believe this, 140,000 new cases a day, which blows my mind. So I do think that this was the right way to go. Um, And again, I I think we're both supportive of the mandate. But And it seems like a huge percentage, if if not 100% of the people or close to 100% of the people who are dying are unvaccinated, that the the vaccine doesn't necessarily protect you from getting COVID, but like it does protect you from the worst effects of it. And, um, you know, you don't, you know, you're not seeing as many stories of like, you know, young people getting intubated and things like that, like what was happening in the early days of COVID. Um, I'm guessing it's it's the it's the vaccine is working in that sense. It's it's um, it's it mitigates against the worst effects, like lessens the loads on on hospitals, on the medical system and just reduces the number of deaths, Um, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just a no brainer to get vaccinated. But some people might need a little more help, uh, more accessibility. And in some cases, you know, a little more encouragement and You know, Ben Burgess also makes this point, which I think is accurate, about um, employers mandating the vaccine. On one hand, yes, it's coercive, but you have to kind of balance that out with what's the best option for public health, right? And so I I respect that perspective because it's, it's a way of kind of like, Let's not let's not pretend like this isn't like forcing people to get vaccinated. It, it is right. Um, you could lose your job in some cases if your employer uh, mandates it. Uh, but in terms of public health and keeping people alive, this is you know it's it's worth that cost. Um, and then finally, I wanted to just touch on something that you brought attention to this morning, Nando, uh, while we were talking about the show and what we should talk about. The notion of denying health 
care to individuals who refuse to get vaccinated and then end up in the hospital. So there's a video I want to get to first, and it features uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Um, So let's watch. Dr. Fauci said that if hospitals get any more overcrowded, they're going to have to make some very tough choices about who gets an ICU bed. That choice doesn't seem so tough to me. Vaccinated person having a heart attack? Yes, come right on in. We'll take care of you. Unvaccinated guy who gobbled horse goo? Rest in peace, Wheezy. You're... Yeah, I, I, I didn't like that. <laughs> right. Like, I understand the frustration. And that's been something that's bothered me. Like the idea of someone who's sick with some other issue not being able to go to the hospital or be admitted to the hospital because the hospital is like full of COVID patients. It's frustrating because it's something that can be prevented. But you can't deny care to people. I like don't. And, you know, some might argue he's just joking around, but it seems like the audience mm. loved that point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, I, 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 I push back against the notion that the peop, the percentage, like if you said 80 million Americans are unvaccinated. I'm not sure that like uh, even the overwhelming majority of those are like right wingers. Um, I'm just I'm just skeptical of that. I, I think they're the loudest and they're the ones that, that the media covers the most. Um, I just I've seen it in my personal life. I'm sure you have as well, that it's 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 a weird it cuts across a weird partisan thing it's not it's not as neat as any other, as some of these other issues um it's not it's it's not as neat as the libs might might think you know they might think like oh it's only like those annoying trumpers that aren't getting vaccinated and like there's a there's a good there's a lot of those going around but there's also a lot of liberals who are not getting vaccinated i you know i live in venice uh, santa monica area you know the vaccines in the center. You know that's lib. That's lib city, and they don't like vaccines there too much either. I mean, there's been stories in the past of like measles outbreaks and things like that in 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 Santa Monica because uh, parents refused to vaccinate their children. And these are not Trumpers by any stretch of the imagination. These are affluent liberals. Um, so the vaccine issue is not as neat as um, some of these liberals would like to uh, believe. You know they they've they see it as like a, a form of identity, like, you know, an I- identity as like everything is coming around these days, but it's, it's just not as neat. And, and again, that kind of thing is just, that's just right wing. That's just a right wing view of the world. Like, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. that's just, that's just a personal response. You know, that's just a right wing view of the world. Like that is, you know, denying people's health care because of something like that is just, that's just wrong. It's pretty callous. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty callous. Again, I understand the frustration and like, look, I'm, going to be in Florida myself in less than a month. And, uh, you know, got some in-laws don't want to get vaccinated and freaking terrified about getting sick. Like I've been, I'm va- fully vaccinated, but you never know. And I'm like, if anything happens to us in Florida, there's like no hospital beds right now. Like, what are yeah. we going to do? You know, like, I think that the frustration and the fear is legitimate, but, um, you know, callous statements like that, I don't think, uh, is the way to go. All right. Yeah. Uh, our producer, Kale, is telling us we got to go. We got to go. Uh, we want to make sure we stay on schedule. So, Nando, uh, a word from our sponsor. <laughs> a word from our sponsors. You can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Ver- Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag for as long as you are a subscriber. All memberships are 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in September, you'll get these four books. Everything, all the time, everywhere. How We Became Postmodern by Stuart Jeffries. 
Everything and Less, the novel in the age of Amazon by Mark McGurl, Revolution in Intellectual History by Enzo Traverso, and Work Without the Worker, Labor in the Age of Platform Capitalism by Phil Jones. You know, Paul Prescott was giving you um, some major props for the way you do the read. And I was like, yeah, he does a good job. But no, I was like paying close attention today. And I'm like, yeah, he definitely jazzes it up. So (laughs) you got to jazz it up. You got to sell the products, baby. You know, you got to throw some enthusiasm uh, behind it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Nando. Well, um, I made a mistake. I thought today was uh, 9-11, but it's not. It's actually the 10th. Um, That's how burnt out I am. But tomorrow does mark uh, the anniversary. So uh, that's what your segment's about. Take it away. Yes, it is. As you said, tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And it's hard to believe that it's been two decades since that fateful day. I'll always, I'll never forget it. I was a sophomore in high school. And as one could expect, the networks have prepared a series of tribute documentaries and news specials. Your TV will be flooded with all manner of remembrances. Every newscast will dedicate a good chunk of the day to 9-11. Netflix is releasing a docu-series. Not Geo has one. ABC has one that focuses on the women of 9-11. Apple TV has one called Inside the President's War Room, narrated by Jeff Daniels. All in all, Entertainment Weekly says that there are no fewer than 17 new 9-11 documentaries being released to commemorate the 20th anniversary of the attacks. And one of those 17 comes from acclaimed filmmaker and New York City's native son, Spike Lee. On the morning of September 11th, the whole world changed. I don't think America was prepared for something like this to happen in our country. When I was on the pile, when I was part of that effort, you really felt the love of humanity right there. It was, it just lifted you. I didn't remember that Steve Buscemi was like a frontline worker that day. Uh, Anyway, Spike Lee got his hand slapped when he started asking some questions about 9-11. Director Spike Lee is under fire for including 9-11 conspiracy theories in his new HBO documentary series about the September 11th attacks. It's garnering negative headlines around the country. In the documentary, Lee reportedly appears to agree with members of a controversial organization called Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, who believe in the debunked theory that the Twin Towers were brought down by a controlled explosion and not the hijacked planes. In an interview with the New York Times, the famed director says he still has questions about what really happened on 9-11. The media came out in full force to discipline Spike Lee for his heresies. He ended up cutting the controversial segments out of his documentary series. But can you really blame Spike Lee, or anyone really, for having questions about 9-11? I mean, you don't have to be a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist to feel that the official narrative around 9-11 is just wrong. In the wake of the attack, the narrative was that 9-11 was carried out by a terrorist group called Al-Qaeda, led by a guy named Osama bin Laden, and that their headquarters were in Afghanistan. So, well, we had to go in there and kill them all. But that basic narrative was maintained largely due to the fact that an important chunk of the government's own investigation into 9-11 was kept hidden from the American people. In the months after 9-11, the House and Senate convened joint hearings to produce this massive report titled The Joint Inquiry into Intelligence Community Activities Before and After the Terrorist Attacks of September 11, 2001. 
Facing stonewalling from the Bush administration and other issues, the joint inquiry was not exactly considered a rousing success. I think the failure of that committee to be able to do a thorough investigation was made the families and the country call for the creation of the 9-11 Commission. One of those failures in the 2002 Joint Inquiry Report of 900 pages, 28 redacted pages, which stick out like a sore thumb. Potential sources of foreign support for the September 11th hijackers, classified by the Bush administration. Now, for years, the families of the victims of 9-11 pushed to declassify the 28 redacted pages. And one of their biggest allies in that fight was former Democratic Senator from Florida, Bob Graham. He was one of the co-chairs of the bipartisan congressional inquiry into 9-11. And because of his position, he had read the 28 pages. But because they were classified, he couldn't really say exactly what was in them without breaking the law. But he knew what was in them, and he worked with the families' associations to pressure the government to declassify them. All right. So if they release these pages that you've been pushing for for some time, what do you think the result will be? It will go a long way, I believe, in answering the question, did these 19 hijackers who carried out a very sophisticated plot uh, act alone or did they have a support network within the United States which facilitated and probably contributed to the attack being able to be carried out? Uh, I think it's implausible to think that the 19 hijackers, most of whom could not speak English, had never been in the United States before, were not particularly well educated, could have carried out the plot of 9-11. And therefore, there was a support network. And I believe the evidence tends to point towards Saudi Arabia as being the source of that support. How important is it to get this information out? I think it's very important. We have had a long relationship with Saudi Arabia. It goes back to World War II when President Roosevelt and King Saud agreed that the United States would get a guaranteed source of petroleum in exchange for providing security and military protection for Saudi Arabia. Uh, that relationship, which uh, served us uh, generally well uh, for many years, I think is now very frayed. Uh, for one thing, the United States is becoming more energy independent, less reliant on Saudi Arabia. And for another, uh, our approach to dealing with terrorism uh, has dramatically diverged. And I now believe that the protection that's been provided to Saudi Arabia uh, has frustrated uh, U.S. interest in aggressively and effectively pursuing the war on terror and specifically on ISIS. So it was Saudi Arabia all along. Well, it makes sense. Osama bin Laden was Saudi after all, as were 15 of the 19 hijackers. But the role that the Saudi, gover the Saudi government officials played to finance, coordinate, and generally aid the attack was suppressed by first the Bush administration and then the Obama administration for years. And according to Bob Graham, the government was incredibly aggressive in the way it fought to keep that information secret. In an interview with The New York Times in 2015, he said, quote, One thing that irritates me is that the FBI has gone beyond just covering up, trying to avoid disclosure into what I call aggressive deception. It wasn't until 2016 that the Obama administration finally allowed the pages to be seen. And lo and behold, they detailed a whole lot of Saudi involvement in the attack. First off, can you explain exactly what's in these 28 pages? 
Well, Rena, um, there's a lot of detail in here, and a lot of it's based on uh, FBI reports and CIA reports, and it talks about, um, for example, two uh, Saudi men who had uh, relationships or contacts with two of the 9-11 hijackers in California. It talks about how they were funded, where they got money from, um, who they associated with. And, for example, one of them, uh, in fact, members of the U.S. Muslim community told U.S. officials that they thought these two guys were Saudi intelligence agents. And they had contact with these 9-11 hijackers. For example, example Omar al-Bayoumi uh, met with the hijackers shortly after having met with someone from the Saudi consulate, the uh, review says. And it concludes it was an encounter that did not appear to be accidental. Now, the original inquiry was beset by problems from the very beginning. After being pressured to do the inquiry in the first place, Bush appointed friend of the show, Henry Kissinger, to lead the commission. President Bush signed legislation today creating an independent commission to investigate the September 11th attack on America. The president named a supporter, Dr. Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State in the Nixon and Ford administrations, to head the panel. Today I'm pleased to announce my choice for commission chairman, Dr. Henry Kissinger. And from the very beginning, there were questions about Saudi Arabia's role in 9-11, at 9-11. At Kissinger's press conference accepting Bush's nomination to lead the 9-11 inquiry, he was asked by it about, about it by a reporter. Kissinger, do you have any concerns about, once the commission begins its work, if fingers point to valuable allies, say Saudi Arabia, for example, um, the implications, the policy implications this could have to the United States, particularly at this delicate time? Uh. I have been given every assurance uh, by the president that we should uh, that we should go where the facts lead us, and that we are not restricted by any foreign policy considerations. Well, it turns out that once Kissinger got in there, the 9/11 families, uh, the victims, the, the families of the 9/11 victims had some tough questions of their own. Several family members approached Kissinger and requested a meeting at his office in New York. Prior to the meeting, Kristen Breitweiser conducted a thorough investigation of Kissinger's potential conflicts of interest. Probably much to the chagrin of some of the people in the room, Lori asked some very pointed questions. Would you have any Saudi American clients that you would like to tell us about? And he was very uncomfortable, kind of twisting and turning on the couch. And then she asked whether he had any clients by the name of bin Laden. And he just about fell off his couch. Now, there was huge pressure for Kissinger to release his client list, which Kissinger refused to do. And he was then forced to resign from the commission. Now, the question becomes, why would the U.S. government go to such lengths to protect Saudi Arabia? Um, after all, they did the attack. Well, to understand that, one must go back several decades when Franklin Delano Roosevelt met with then Saudi King Abdul Aziz bin Saud on a naval cruiser called the Quincy in a place called the Bitter Lake in Egypt. Adam Curtis's documentary, Bitter Lake, describes Roosevelt's Faustian bargain with the Saudi monarch. But Roosevelt knew that to keep that power, America needed oil. 
and he wanted to forge an alliance with the king to make sure that the vast Saudi oil fields remained under American control. In their conversation, the two men laid the foundations for an alliance that continues to the present day. America would get its oil, and in return, Saudi Arabia would receive wealth and security from America. But the king was well aware of the dangers of opening up his country to the influence of the modern West. And in the negotiations that followed, he laid down a condition. We will take your technology and your money, he said, but you must leave our faith alone. The Saudi faith was called Wahhabism. It was a radical, violent, and extremely puritanical form of Islam. And its followers among the Bedouin tribes hated the modern world. Wahhabism was part of a wider movement in Islam that had risen up in reaction to the European empires. Another was the Diabandi movement in India. They all believed that modern imperialism was corrupting the true nature of Islam and wanted to go back to a world based on the original teachings of the Islamic texts. Abdulaziz had harnessed this force in the 1920s to seize power. But he had unleashed something that didn't want to stop. The Wahhabists wanted to go on and create a caliphate across the whole of the Arab world. And to stop them, in 1929, Abdulaziz machine-gunned them. He ruthlessly killed the warriors who had made him king. But their belief, a violent, intolerant, and above all backward-looking version of Islam, remained at the heart of Saudi Arabian society. And the deal made that day on the Great Bitter Lake meant that America would get its oil, but it would also be protecting Wahhabism, a force that had its own global ambitions, ambitions that were very different from America's. Now, America's support for Saudi Arabia's monarchy and their brand of religious extremism had two benefits. The first was access to the kingdom's vast oil reserves. That's obvious. But the second benefit was that Islamic extremism could serve as a bulwark against secular Arab nationalism and <clears throat> Arab socialism that sought to assert Arab sovereignty in the wake of Western imperialism. As an example of this, it's worth seeing this video of Egypt's longtime president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, perhaps the most towering figure in the secular Arab nationalist movement, laughing about a conversation he had with the leader of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood, who said that he should force every woman to wear a hijab. The first thing he asked for was to make making wearing a hijab mandatory in Egypt. Every woman walking. Let him wear it. U.S. policymakers saw Arab nationalism as a threat because Arab nationalists like to nationalize their country's resources, like when Nasser shocked the world by nationalizing the Suez Canal in 1956. Muslim extremism was a perfect way to counter the appeal of Arab nationalism. This is according to Jacobin. Uh, quote, in the 1950s, there was a problem for the United States called Gamal Abdel Nasser, whose resolute independence was unacceptable. The new leader of Egypt was such a threat that Secretary of State John Foster Dulles took Eisenhower's statement that the Nasser problem could be eliminated to be an assassination order. To try to weaken Nasser, the U.S. wooed the Muslim Brotherhood, despite or rather because of its record of terrorism and violence against the state. 
Americans also saw anti-communist potential in its religiosity. Either we shall walk the path of Islam or we shall walk the path of communism, wrote Said Qutb, the group's chief theoretician. McCarthy-era Washington was receptive. In 1953, a covert U.S. program brought leading thinkers and activists from the Middle East to Princeton. To Princeton, Among them was the Brotherhood Saeed Ramadan, son-in-law of the group's founder. He visited the White House that same year and would become the CIA's man. In 1954, a Brotherhood attempt to assassinate Nasser backfired. He survived and launched a crackdown, arresting thousands. In 1956, Nasser's popularity surged thanks to his nationalization of the Suez Canal, which led Britain and France to occupy the canal and Israel to invade the Sinai. All three were forced to withdraw, and Nasser became a regional hero. And this basic story is repeated over and over again, whether it was the CIA orchestrated coup in Iran in 1953 to overthrow the secular Arab nationalist democratically, the secular nationalist democratically elected leader Mohammed Mossadegh, or the U.S.'s support for the Afghan Muslim Brotherhood and arming of the Mujahideen, including one Osama bin Laden, to counter the Soviet-backed secular communist government in Afghanistan. But flash forward to the present day, 20 years after the attacks, President Biden has pulled out of Afghanistan in an admirable and I think politically courageous move. But he also raised eyebrows when he announced that he was going to declassify more documents related to 9-11, much to the relief of the victims' families. Now this year, an executive order signed by President Biden that could finally unlock the information they've been fighting for. We need a president that'll take our sides. We are done uh, listening to lip service. We are done of the empty promises. After two decades of grief and anger, Eagleson is allowing himself a new emotion, hope. Help us bring closure. It's 20 years. There's no excuses anymore. The Justice Department will have to release any documents it declassifies to the public over the next six months. That'll go a long way toward helping Eagleson and other 9-11 families heal. But, Shep, it's also just one step in the bigger lawsuit against Saudi Arabia. That could still take years to play out. But whatever you think of 9-11, whether you believe the official narrative or whether you believe that Saudi Arabia did it or whether you believe that it was Bush himself, one thing we can all agree on is that 9-11 changed everything. Peter, you do realize there's a difference between loving America and being swept up in post-9-11 paranoia. Brian, are you suggesting that 9-11 didn't change everything? What? No, I was just... Because 9-11 changed everything, Brian. 9-11 changed everything. Peter, you didn't even know what 9-11 was until 2004. Yes, 9-11 changed everything. For starters, it probably killed the momentum of what might have been a resurgent left-wing movement in the United States in the wake of the Battle of Seattle and the anti-globalization protests of the late 90s. But that's a different conversation for a different day. The main thing is that it launched the war on terror, a war that despite Biden's admirable pullout of Afghanistan, rages on in many other parts of the world. And the human cost of that war is simply staggering. According to the Watson Institute at Brown University, at least 801,000 people have been killed by direct war violence in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Pakistan. The number of people who have been wounded or have fallen ill as a result of the conflicts is far higher, as is the number of civilians who have died indirectly as a result of the destruction of hospitals and infrastructure and environmental contamination, among other war-related problems. 
Millions of people living in war zones have also been displaced by war. The U.S. post-9-11 wars have forcibly displaced at least 38 million people in and from Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the Philippines, Libya, and Syria. This number exceeds the total displaced by every war since 1900, except for World War II. And the financial costs of that war are equally staggering. According to a new study by the Institute for Policy Studies, puts the total cost since 2001 at $21 trillion. That is $21 trillion with a T. The breakdown is broadly that it was $16.7 trillion. That was straight up military spending, of which around $7 trillion went to contractors or private interests. $3.07 trillion went to support for veterans who came back traumatized and maimed from our wars. $949 billion went to Homeland Security mainly militarizing our borders, and $732 billion went to federal law enforcement. Isn't that fun? The study also outlined things that we could have done with that money instead. For example, $4.5 trillion is what it would cost to fully decarbonize the U.S. electric grid. That would be nice. $2.3 trillion could create $5 million $15 per hour jobs with benefits and cost of living adjustments for 10 years. $1.7 trillion could erase student debt. $449 billion could uh, could continue the extended child tax credit for another 10 years. $200 billion could guarantee free preschool for every three- and four-year-old for 10 years and raise teacher pay. $25 billion, just $25 billion, could provide COVID vaccines for the population of low-income countries. So that is 9-11's true legacy. That is what it means when we say 9-11 changed everything. Death and destruction abroad with a giant sucking of resources here at home, not to mention the creation of an entire surveillance state. Thankfully, it looks like the American people are starting to realize it. Uh, according to the Washington Post, quote, Americans are incre increasingly say that the events of September 11, 2001 had a more negative than positive impact on this country. And predictions for the pandemic's long-term impact have been even more downbeat, according to a Washington Post ABC News poll. Ahead of the 20th anniversary of the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on Saturday, more than 8 in 10 Americans say that those events changed the country in a lasting way. Nearly half, 46% say the events of 9-11 changed the country for the worse, while 33% say they changed the country for the better. That represents a shift from 10 years ago when Americans were roughly divided on this question, and it marks an even larger swing from the first anniversary of the attacks in 2002. But that isn't stopping our government from continuing to try to keep us living in fear. The good old Department of Homeland Security, which was, it's worth remembering, created in the wake of 9-11, is saying that we should be very afraid on Saturday, despite, you know, the absence of any credible threat. Late last week, the Department of Homeland Security and FBI warning that foreign terrorist organizations could exploit the anniversary. The agency is saying in a bulletin sent to law enforcement leaders obtained by ABC News that they are not currently aware of any specific credible threats related to the date. So then why should we be worried? I mean, they're just like hypothetically speculating on a hypothesis. The line on 9-11 has been to never forget. This despite the fact that we were lied to about the true culprits of 9-11 and we still don't have all the facts. We may never get them, but we should keep putting pressure on the authorities for full transparency into what happened on that day. We spent too much money and killed too many people to be left in the dark. All right. That was great. Um, and also speaks to the reason why so many people in the country find conspiracy theories so appealing, right? Like we talk about the distrust that Americans have toward our institutions and it didn't 
just happen randomly. Like when you think about the lack of transparency by the federal government, um, the willingness to just kind of like boil everything down to like these black and white issues. Um, and even like when you, when you think back to how the Bush administration just flat out lied to the American people regarding why we were um, invading Iraq in that preemptive war. So many Americans thought then, as they might still believe, that like Iraq was somehow behind 9-11. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just all of that stuff plays a role in what we're experiencing today with COVID and vaccine hesitancy, that that distrust in our institutions it doesn't just stay contained in this foreign policy bubble. Um, so, and I, and I love the way, the way that you pointed to the financial interests at play in regard to empowering and emboldening the very groups that we're now at war with, or, or, or until very recently in Afghanistan, we're at war with, you know, in regard to the Taliban. So um, that was, that was great. Uh, but I want to know why you're such a conspiracy theorist, Nando. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this, the sad thing is that, like, the damage is done. Like, even if we do find out, like, quote, unquote, the truth uh, on, yeah. about what happened in 9-11, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter that much anymore, mostly because, like, the damage is done, you know? Yep. Absolutely. And people, like, we have largely moved on, you know? Yeah, but I do think that it's like a it's a cautionary tale, not just for the federal government. I mean, they'll probably make the same mistakes over again. Um, but for people to be and, and I think we are seeing this. This is the positive side of it. Right. People are a lot more hesitant today versus like 20 years ago in just accepting the federal government's narrative on why we need to go to war with whatever country. Right. Um, so that's a good sign. There's really there was bipartisan support to pull out of Afghanistan. Democrats and Republicans alike were like, let's get the hell out of there, which is why on one hand, it was bold for Biden to do it because he's going up against um, the corporate interests at play. But in terms of like speaking to the interests of the American people, he did something that's actually incredibly popular. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, I don't want to go on too long because we uh, want to stay on schedule for our guests. So why don't we get to my decode and then we'll bring on Adam uh, to talk about uh, COVID, the economy and more. So I wanted to talk about the issue of uh, monopolies and um, this myth that people keep hearing regarding the amazing element of competition in a capitalist system. And uh, there's a side to that that I don't think gets discussed much, um, certainly not in uh, mainstream discussions. So let's talk about it. New unsealed documents and email exchanges obtained by The Intercept provide some pretty serious evidence that Myelin Pharmaceuticals intentionally created a monopoly for the anti-allergy drug known as EpiPen in order to price gouge patients and insurers. Now, obviously, this is um, an awful thing to do. It's an immoral thing to do. Uh, but you have to take morality out of it and think about market forces, think about financial interests, uh, profit motives, because that's really what drives these types of actions. Now, while proponents of capitalism would have us believe that the economic system's emphasis on competition reigns supreme, the truth is that competition often leads to monopolies, poor working conditions, 
and less solidarity among workers. And that's really the point that I want to make in this story. But before I can make that case, let's take a look at what happened exactly with Myelin Pharmaceuticals and the EpiPen. Now, documents that were unsealed by a judge in the antitrust lawsuit against Myelin Pharmaceuticals show that Senator Joe Manchin's daughter, Heather Bresch, who was the CEO of Myelin Pharmaceuticals at the time, conspired with her competitor, Pfizer, in order to ensure that there would be a monopoly for the EpiPen, meaning that even though there was an opportunity for other pharmaceutical companies to create a generic version of this um, allergy medication, uh, she wanted to kind of uh, prevent that from happening by conspiring with one of the other largest uh, pharmaceutical companies, and that's Pfizer. So as Ryan Grimm reports in The Intercept, in a January 2011 email on behalf of Heather Bresch to Pfizer's former CEO, Ian Reed, Bresch confirms a previous discussion with Reed in which she says that the two agreed that as part of a deal, Pfizer would disinvest from its EpiPen competitor, Adrenaclick. Eliminating its main competitor would then allow Mylan to continue raising its prices. So Brush's assistant also wrote an email to executives over at Pfizer. And I want to give you a little taste of what that email said. She said, quote, I'm sending you this email as a reminder that you were sent, you were to send me confirmation relative to our discussion regarding EpiPen. In that discussion, you indicated that you would be divesting your adrenaclick product once the Pfizer King deal closes. King, by the way, is the drug manufacturer that made the EpiPen. And Pfizer had actually bought King uh, to manufacture its version um, of the EpiPen. I understand your tender offer is closing today, so I would appreciate receiving your response as soon as possible. Now, again, there's a, a very clear reason why Myelin Pharmaceuticals would want to squash any competition to the EpiPen, right? They want to monopolize the market in regard to this drug. But what motivated Pfizer? Well, uh, as Ryan Grimm reports, uh, by divesting from Adrenaclick and continuing to allow Myelin to sell the EpiPen at inflated prices, both firms would split the profits from the more expensive version, allowing Pfizer to earn more than it would if it drove down prices with its cheaper version. So they literally conspired. Uh, the executives of both pharmaceutical companies got together and they're like, mm, do we really want to drive prices down through competition? when we can monopolize the market and then split the profits. And that's exactly what they ended up doing. Once Pfizer agreed to this deal, it paved the way for Mylan to price gouge patients and insurers. The prior deal with uh, Pfizer, um, uh, basically the EpiPen, uh, prior to the deal with Pfizer, the EpiPen sold for about $100. But following the deal with Pfizer, Mylan drove the price above $600 within five years. So with the monopoly in place, leaving patients and insurers with no choice but to shell out whatever Mylan wanted to charge for the drug, Brush actually went even further. She signed off on a scheme to essentially force patients to purchase two EpiPens at once. They didn't even have the option to buy one pen at a time. The documents also show Brush approving a scheme 
to force customers captured by the company's monopoly to purchase two EpiPens at once, regardless of medical need. The monopoly had created space for the new scheme, and the new scheme created extra revenue that Mylan split with Pfizer, thus entrenching the monopoly and warding off generics and also set aside to dole out as rebates to third parties who might complain according to the internal correspondence. And to be sure, once there were complaints, once there was backlash, Mylan Pharmaceuticals is like, don't worry, we've got these coupons for you. We're looking out for you, okay? We've got your best interests at heart. Now, obviously, we know that that's not true. Now, um, even though Mylan had already inflated the prices of EpiPens uh, prior to the two-pen scheme, the company's chief operating officer, through email correspondence, made clear that he wanted to go further, okay? They already raised the prices. They're doing the two EpiPen scheme. And they're like, well, no one's really complained. So why don't we raise prices more? And he communicated this to Heather Bresch in an email that read, Harry, Ron, Joe, Mike, and I are recommending a price increase now for EpiPen. The original plan was to increase in December or January, assuming there was no backlash from Project X2. That's the two EpiPen scheme, of course. Project X2 implementation has been without any issues. Last price increase was May 2011. No pushback on that either. Sanders wrote, uh, then of course, he's the COO. The incremental sales would be 5.5 million to 6 million, and it all drops to the bottom line. And so this is all taking place over several years. It's very clear through this evidence that you have the executives of two pharmaceutical companies conspiring in order to create a monopoly for this drug. But Bresch lied to members of Congress as she was testifying before them in 2016. Did you plan on increasing the price in 2017? No, sir, we did not. Okay, but you did have a plan then to raise it every year for five or six years? And if you look at what we received out of that No, not and. I just asked you a question. Did you have a plan to raise the price every year for six years? We have raised the price. We have raised the price, and I think managing to what we received, that 274 out of the 608 is what we were managing. So, you know, you're obviously proud of your company. You think that was fair then to raise the price each year to that point, even though you got a drug at $100, which was probably too much for the drug considering what the cost is. I know you made a fancy clicker because I had one of your reps come by my office back in 2009 or 10 show me how to use it. So I know that costs a little bit of money. But generally when a a drug goes to generic, doesn't the price go down? which is why we dropped it to $300. Only after you jacked it up to 600 It's like if I go yeah. buy this tie and they say it's $600, but we're going to sell it to me for 300 that doesn't make it worth $300. You fixed the price on the drug. She fixed the price on the drug, and now we have evidence making that abundantly clear. But what makes this story even worse is that it seems like the Manchin family just can't get enough. The grift just keeps on grifting because if you take a look at Manchin's wife, she played a role in all of this as well. So Gail Manchin, Heather Brush's mother, lobbied states to require schools to stock epinephrine as the head of the National Association of State Boards of Education. Gail Manchin was, by the way, recently confirmed to serve as co-chair of the Federal Appalachian Regional Commission, a government agency tasked with promoting economic development across the region's 13 states. Now, just a quick aside before we get to the idea that competition actually makes the capitalist system better. 
The reason why this story about these two pharmaceutical companies conspiring uh, to monopolize a drug is so important is because one of the things that Heather Bresch certainly does not want is for Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. Right now, the Medicare system uh, is banned from doing that. And the incredibly important budget reconciliation bill that Bernie is pushing includes a provision that would allow for Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. Heather Brush's father, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, has been vociferous against that reconciliation bill, claiming that it just spends too much money. So just keep all of that in mind as you hear these nonsense excuses for Manchin over why he uh, purportedly is against the reconciliation bill. But now let's get back to monopolies and this notion of competition making capitalism so great. Look, defenders of the current system will argue that, well, monopolies aren't actually a normal result of capitalism. This is crony capitalism or corrupt capitalism. But this is fundamentally a mischaracterization of how capitalism works. So um, any and every capitalist wants a monopoly. I mean, clearly that was the case with Heather Brush and Mylan Pharmaceuticals. If you're trying to make a profit, the ideal amount of customers to have for your product is literally all of them. That's the point. I mean, that is the driver here, right? You want every customer. The thing that stands in the way of having every customer is every other competitor capitalist who also wants every customer in the market. Now, in the case of Myland Pharmaceuticals, its executives conspired to create a monopoly to maximize profits. But even without that type of deal making, monopolization is a natural result of competition. That might seem paradoxical, but it's not. So competition is the name of the game in capitalism, right? So it is the defining quality of the system. And while it can be on the one hand celebrated as the engine of innovation, on the other hand, it's also massively destructive. Vivek Chibber writes in uh, Vivek Chibber writes in ABCs of Capitalism. What the capitalist typically finds is that the market is nothing like a peaceful fantasy. It is, in fact, more like a war zone. And it challenges, and the challenges of the market affect every part of the production process, forcing adjustments at every step, buying from buying inputs to marketing. What turns the market into something like a war zone is the fact of competition. So in that war, the number one weapon that's used is cutting prices, right? You have companies competing with one another. How do they attract all the customers, all the clients, all the consumers? They do it by cutting costs to provide a cheaper product. Um, and so to get someone to buy your goods um, over someone else's, you either have to sell the goods at the same quality at a lower price or sell uh, better quality goods at the same price. Now, to be able to lower your prices, you also have to either introduce uh, new technology or you cut your costs, right? Now, not all capitalists are so lucky to be able to introduce new technology, um, and there are some barriers to entry as well to keep in mind. But remember, when the Boeing 737 MAX planes were crashing and they needed to be grounded, well, competition played a massive role in that disaster. The two biggest airplane manufacturers in the world are Airbus and Boeing, and they have a fierce rivalry. If one of them can offer a better plane, the other could lose a lot of money. That's exactly what was about to happen in 2010. Airbus announced that they would update their most popular model, the A320, 
a single-aisle airplane that services many domestic flights. You've probably been on one. For this new plane, Airbus had a big update. It would have a new kind of engine. It was much larger than the previous engine, but it would make the plane 15% more fuel efficient. And just as importantly, this upgrade wouldn't change the plane that much. A pilot could walk into the new model with little additional training and be on their way. It was called the A320neo, and it would save airlines a lot of money. This was a problem for Boeing. Boeing needs to compete with Airbus, and they found a way to alter their existing planes in such a way that it would cut costs while competing with Airbus. Just like Airbus with the A320, Boeing said that their new plane was so similar to its predecessor that pilots would only need minimal additional training. The 737 MAX became the hottest selling plane on the market. And it helped Boeing keep up with Airbus. Except moving the engine up on the 737 had a side effect. When the 737 MAX was in full thrust, like during takeoff, the nose tended to point too far upward, which could lead to a stall. This was a problem because these planes were supposed to behave exactly like the old ones. So Boeing came up with a workaround. Instead of re-engineering the planes, they installed software that automatically pushed the nose downward if the pilot flew the plane at too high of an angle. They called it the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, or MCAS. But because Boeing was selling the 737 MAX as pretty much the same plane as the 737, they didn't highlight the new MCAS system. Many pilots only got a two-hour iPad course before entering the cockpit for the first time. And the training material didn't mention the MCAS software. In 2018, several American pilots complained to the federal government that the 737 MAX was suddenly nosing down. And of course, that led to several tragic crashes and the Boeing 737 MAX needed to be grounded as a result. So both the cost-effective way of altering their existing uh, fleet of planes and the lack of investment in training their pilots led to several of these crashes, including one particularly awful crash in Ethiopia that started to raise significant red flags. So we can already see the negative side of competition that capitalists tend to avoid discussing at all. But what about competition's impact on monopolies? Well, as Professor Richard Wolff explains, oftentimes it's competition that leads to monopolies. Company A produces, however it manages it, a better quality and or a lower price than company B. So we all go to company A. Company B can't find any buyers because it's not competitive. Or to say the same thing in other words, Company A outcompetes Company B. Here's what happens. Company B collapses because it can't sell its goods. We're all going to Company A. So Company B, sooner or later, declares bankruptcy. It can't continue. Now, competition in capitalism means that there are winners and losers. And to be clear, the losers die. They collapse. And those left standing are bigger and tend to own far more. As Sam Gindin writes in Jacobin, in more recent decades, corporations came and went at an accelerating pace. Of the 10 largest U.S. corporations listed by Fortune in 1995, only one remained in 2020. 
names that led their field not so long ago, Blockbuster in rental video, Compact uh, in computer manufacturing are gone. And other former Goliaths like General Electric, General Motors, and IBM have flirted with bankruptcy. So there are some serious consequences, as you can imagine, for workers as well. In fact, uh, Sam Gindin writes in the same piece that the most effective capitalists survive and take over the capital of the weaker ones, which strengthens capitalists as a class. For workers, competition fragments the class and undermines their most important weapon, class solidarity, weakening their potential class power. With fewer jobs available as a result of companies collapsing due to competition, well, workers find themselves competing with one another for the jobs that remain. And companies collapsing inevitably leads to layoffs. We all know this. So these especially desperate workers reduce pressures on employers having to bid workers away from other jobs and serves as a disciplinary warning to all workers of what awaits them should they get out of line. So again, competition creates monopolies. These monopolies have a negative effect uh, on workers and the fragmented workforce, a product of competition, then leads to lower wages and poor working conditions, as Professor Wolf also outlines in this clip. One of the ways Amazon beat at competition is it speeds up the work process. It has figured out ways to make people work much more intensely, using up their brains, their muscles, their nerves in ways that cause real long-term physical damage to working people. That, too, is a result of the competitive effort. And, you know, it wasn't so long ago that children were part of the labor force, that's right, kids as young as five and six years of old, uh, of age. We were told they have little fingers, you see. They can be more productive than people who are adults with big fat fingers, you know. That doesn't work. And by the way, you should be grateful because poor kids are the ones we hire, and that gives their poor families more income than they would otherwise have. We heard those arguments. Competition the company said, require them to use the more productive and the lower-wage children rather than adults. In other words, uh, the process capitalists of capitalists competing is particularly never-ending, and that means more and more workers will get crushed in the process. So what are the solutions? Well, Let's take a look at what hasn't worked. The federal government has an antitrust division that's tasked with breaking up companies and preventing mergers and acquisitions. Clearly, that attempt to rein in capitalism hasn't really been very successful. We're dealing with uh, monopolized industries. Um, you know, telecommunication companies could be a, a perfect example of that. But even so, as Doug Henwood writes in Jacobin, socialists should distrust antitrust. Uh, behind antitrust is a faith in competition as a positive good. As socialists, we should take exception to that. We already have too much competition, competitive individualism in the society, and we don't need any more. We need solidarity. Stimulating the war of each against all isn't the way to get there. And so Henwood does uh, suggest a different approach, writing that a better way to handle bigness is to regulate the behemoths and encourage the growth of unions. That would do more to improve working conditions at Amazon then turning it into four or 20 little Amazons. 
And look, getting back to Mylan Pharmaceuticals and uh, Heather Bresch, again, Senator Manchin's daughter, uh, experiencing all this backlash for price gouging uh, patients. Look, she claimed that she recognized that the system was broken. She claimed that she wanted to reform the system. But she also made clear what she didn't want to happen. Just cancel the price increase. Why can't you do that? I have to play. The, the, the reality is in the brand pharmaceutical market, this isn't an EpiPen issue. This isn't a myelin issue. This is a health care issue. So you would support the change in the law that would allow the U.S. government to negotiate drug prices for Medicare and Medicaid? No, I don't know that that's the answer. Brash calls the health care system broken with too many middlemen demanding a cut. She does not want any negotiations to take place directly with pharmaceutical companies, certainly not the Medicare system, because the Medicare system, which represents so many people, uh, would have quite a bit of leverage uh, over these pharmaceutical companies. And so, you know, it's it's one thing to have a discussion about uh, the failures of competition, but there are certain areas where we need to completely decommodify. And the healthcare industry is certainly uh, the area that uh, we should be focusing most of our energy on. So corporate executives like Bresch are terrified of the idea that public health care like Medicaid would have the ability to negotiate drug prices directly with drug companies. Uh, the budget reconciliation bill, which I uh, mentioned earlier in this segment, includes a provision that does just that. It would allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices directly with pharmaceutical companies. And so when Senator Joe Manchin protests that, understand that there are some conflicts of interest at play. But in the case of healthcare, as we're discussing now, as we've discussed so many times before on this program and channel, the best thing to do would be to take the profit motive out of healthcare completely and decommodify it. A single payer healthcare system like Medicare for All would ensure that the government would be empowered to negotiate drug prices on behalf of every American, thus giving it the leverage it needs uh, because it has all the patients uh, to ensure that we're getting the best possible price for the drugs and medication that people need to survive. And while it might seem like more competition or breaking up these companies could be the solution. The reality is that the end result of monopolies is inevitable due to the very nature of competition. What we need to do instead is strip these entities of their power over our lives. And to do that means democratizing more of our economy. And I do also want to note that, uh, as Vivek Chibber uh, mentions in his book, you know, although monopolies tend to be the inevitable um, outcome of competition, what also ends up happening is when you have uh, maybe one company that's monopolized the market, uh, a different company might get a little, you know, a little envious of those profits. And when they kind of rise up to serve as competition to the dominant company, um, that's when things get really ugly. And, you know, he talks about this uh, warlike environment as a result of that. Um, but nonetheless, it ends up being a vicious cycle that puts workers at a significant disadvantage. And so when we hear about Mylan conspiring with Pfizer, uh, more competition might be the answer that we get from our federal government and the antitrust division. But at the end of the day, that is not the end all be all in terms of a solution to prevent that kind of um, that kind of action from taking place in the future. Nando. Couldn't have said it better myself. 
I, I, I don't want to wait too long because I, I know our guest is waiting, but maybe we just get to get to our guest. I, I, I don't want to keep him waiting. So Sure. Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. Um, so uh, joining us now is Adam Tooze. He's a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of the award-winning analysis of the 2008 financial meltdown, Crashed, as well as Wages of Destruction and the Del- uh, Del- Deluge. Um he has written and reviewed uh, for, he has been written about and reviewed for Foreign Affairs, the Financial Times, the Guardian. I mean, you're all over the pa- place, all Adam. Over the place. This is a really impressive. Yeah. His latest book is called Shut Down How COVID Shook the World's Economy, and it's out now from Viking. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start off by, um, you know, hearing the distinctions between the economic collapse of 2008 and what our economy has experienced uh, as a result of coronavirus and the uh, shutdowns uh, or lockdowns that happened um, in in various countries. Um, Are there differences and and how do you, um, you know, suss out those? uh, How do you suss them out? It it is a huge problem. I mean, I think it's a problem because what we've just experienced is, I would argue, unique in our experience to date as modern capitalist economies. We've never lived through anything quite like it. 2008, in some ways, was a classic crisis. It was, you might argue, the last great crisis of the North Atlantic financial system that had its origins in the triangular trade and the development of colonial capitalism in the 17th and 18th century and extended all the way through the 20th century, World War I, World War II, and down to 2008. It was about Europe and the United States, over-leveraged banks, a cycle based on real estate, and that imploding. Whereas 2008 has some of the same elements. People suffer unemployment on a gigantic scale, not just in the North, but in the global South. We see an implosion of trade more rapid if you just look at the macroeconomic numbers than something we saw after 1929. In March 2020, and the book focuses on this because it's so much a neglected element of the story, we saw financial markets in turmoil, reminiscent of 2008. And in fact, if you benchmark the collapse in share values, equity values, it's as bad as in 1929. But the difference, of course, is that the causation is fundamentally different. So what I try and do in this book is describe, if you like, the way in which the old familiars, the tensions within global geopolitics, within capitalist democracy, within the financial system on the one hand, intersect with this new shock, the shock of the the pandemic. And the temptation, of course, is to place the pandemic somehow outside of history as though it was some sort of exogenous surprise. But of course, that's also very unhelpful and frankly misleading because Scientists have been, in fact, telling us for half a century, for as long as they've been warning about climate change and more generally about the environmental crisis, they've been warning about this particular risk of emerging infectious diseases stripping across the the world economy, travelling through the channels of globalisation. And yet now, finally, as Mike Davis puts it in one of his brilliant analyses, that monster has arrived, that monster is at our door. And that is, in a sense, what this book tries to describe and anatomise is this global intersection of familiar crisis dynamics and this new, long prophesied, long foretold, but now pressing and still with us, of course, if you look around the globe, the pandemic is no means over. It's a the, the past tense, which I use in the title, is in a sense an artistic license. You need to somehow confine this. This book is about a 12-month period 
between January 2020 and January 2021. But obviously, that we all know that the pandemic, especially in the middle, low income, middle, uh, middle income world, is still rife. Now, you you talk a lot about the um, the decisions that elites make uh, in, in the wake of a crisis, and it's the it kind of gives you clues as to the structures of global power. Um, how have elites responded to the pandemic? Uh, how are they doing? And who's really in charge here? No. <laughs> I wish we knew. I think, I mean, my own diagnosis always tends towards the disaggregation. I, rather than seeing, as it were, a spider in a web pulling the strings, my own view is that we suffer on the whole from a sort of disaggregation of power, diffusion of power, so what's remarkably striking, and this is obviously one of the huge dynamics of work in America today, is that certain channels of crisis fighting are well-oiled, well-greased. They operate at extraordinary speed and with gigantic force, and they mobilize the entire balance sheet of the American state, the single most significant, as it were, means of financial stabilization in the world economy. So I'm talking about central banks and the actions to stabilize financial markets from March 2020 onwards, whereas other mechanisms just don't function at all. For instance, America doesn't have a national unemployment insurance system. Uh, you were talking earlier on about the political economy of competition. Um, we have an utterly ramshackle uh, process for the development of life-saving and essential vaccines. And even now that we've developed them, we have no mechanism for securing their distribution, effective distribution around the world, even though the IMF of all authorities has estimated that the net payout in terms of GDP growth would be $8 trillion for a $50 billion investment. And yet those processes of, as it were, resource mobilization to counter the actual health crisis globally and stop the virus from constantly mutating in body after body those simply don't function. It's as though huge opportunities for collective gain are just lying on the street. It's as though you're basically being offered a winning lottery ticket. You know it's a winning lottery ticket for a million dollars and you say, I don't actually have the dollar to buy it with. It's an absurd kind of failure of coordination. You know, you you talk about the central banks and um, I love the topic and I wish that there was um, honestly more investigation into it, because I, I remember early on in the pandemic when the economy had collapsed, you know, you would hear people like Donald Trump, for instance, he was president at the time, saying that we're going to experience a so-called V-shaped recovery, right? Mm -hmm. This this notion that the economy is going to recover and everyone who's been hurt as a result of uh, coronavirus financially will see uh, their situation improve very soon. But instead, what I think this economic collapse does share with the 2008 economic collapse was that it widened uh, the gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, it continued, it actually accelerated inequality. And I feel that the uh, central bank, certainly the uh, Federal Re uh, Reserve in the United States has helped to exacerbate that and accelerate that. Can you talk about that a little bit and this um, idea of providing liquidity to banks and corporations and, and how uh, damaging that's been. So, yes, I mean, we've gone through the alphabet looking for other letters to label this recovery with. And I think K-shaped is the one that most people have come down on as the best description because the K has, you know, the two, the two parts of the letter go in opposite directions. 
And what's really amazing is that this polarization has happened despite the fact that the federal government in the United States is engaged in an unprecedented level of spending on, on, on welfare. They've printed checks and sent them to American families as never before. Of course, that doesn't address the structural problems of inequality, of bargaining power, of disadvantage, of racialized hierarchy, of criminalization and so on. But it certainly did. In fact, if you take the, just the poverty measure, which isn't a terribly good measure of social power, but if you take that simple measure, poverty actually fell in 2020 in the first half, despite the rise in unemployment. So we discovered that if you just hand out money, it does in fact alleviate poverty in that trivial sense. The rise in inequality comes from the surging benefits provided to those at the top. So the top 10% and really the top 1% of affluence in the United States, people with large portfolios, um, holdings of the S&P 500, basically, of the share index. And, and why this happens is that the extremely blunt instrument of monetary policy is used. And the way it works is that the Federal Reserve intervenes to buy the safest assets out of the market. So the particular market they intervened in this time in 2020 with gigantic effect was the treasury market, the, the, the market for government debt, which is the anchor, as people like Daniel Agarbo, the great critical macro finance theorists have shown us, is the anchor the, of, of private financial speculation is a portfolio of government public debt. And that market was in turmoil. So the Fed steps in, it's buying as much to speak to this liquidity point, it's turning treasuries into dollars, cash dollars, at the rate of a million dollars a second in the last week of March. It's buying over $70 billion of treasuries a day for several weeks. It buys 5% of a $20 trillion market in a matter of weeks. So we've never seen anything like this. This is on a scale much larger than in 2008. And the effect of that, the intended effect, is to shuffle money out of the market the Fed is in, where things are getting more expensive because the Fed is buying them, and into higher risk types of investment, in other words, shares. So the means through which economic policy operates is basically indirectly boosts the equity market, which helps corporations to refinance themselves by issuing capital, but also helps, of course, all of the invested class, that top 10, really top 1% of Americans who actually own a share of this market. And so after cratering in, in late March, the Wall Street has boomed in an extraordinary way all the way down to the present day. So the affluent upper middle class and the elite who have big 401ks and other types of investment come out of this recession unimaginably better off than they were right. before it. Yeah, yeah. Such a great point. Um, you know, just a quick follow up to that. It's more a point than a question. But, you know, when there were debates in Congress regarding uh, the COVID relief that would be provided to ordinary people, um, there was a lot of nickel and diming taking place, a lot of discussion about means testing. But mm -hmm. in terms of monetary policy, in terms of the actions of the Federal Reserve, uh, there was no debate about that. Uh, mm -hmm. so it's a fire yeah. They can just unilaterally make the decision to, um, you know, do yeah. what they've been doing. Yeah. And, and even in between. So what's really novel about 2020 in particular, and not just in the United States, but around the world, is that there is it's explicitly conservative social welfare intervention. So it is unambiguously and undoubtedly the case that uh, low income and precarious families in the United States have never received more federal cash ever as quickly as they did in that period. So that's true on the one hand. But it's also true that the coffers of the federal government were opened, especially in the spring 2020, just indiscriminately to any kind of business. 
So if you like, the entire petty bourgeoisie, small business owners were also, through the payroll protection program, sucked into this scheme. And it, I think it helped that, A, this was a crisis which, you know, finger pointing didn't really work that well, though, of course, by the summer, the Republicans were finger pointing at supposedly idle, unemployed people who didn't want to go back to work. But in the spring, that 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 didn't work very well. And they had their man in their man in the White House. So the usual sort of sniping that you would have received from the GOP is silence. And instead, it's really just this, you know, free for all. And you see this even in Europe, where there are, in fact, much tighter rules on the kind of subsidies that can be provided to business, not because Europe isn't a capitalist state structure, but because they police that capitalist state structure differently. But in the in both cases, it was really just a, a free for all, because the aim of the game Despite, as it were, the revolutionary means that are being used to stabilize the system, the aim of the game is explicitly conservative. It's literally, can we put everyone back where we were before this shock happened? And if not, you know, can we maybe even put them in a slightly better position than they were in before this shock happened? Because, of course, the gamesmanship, the kind of competitive action that you were talking about in the segment before plays out even in these crises. It strikes me hearing all this that um, we're just in an era of such a demassification of, of politics and just uh, democratic accountability, like these decisions get made and we have no say in them at all. We're yapping all day on Jacobin and we, and we have no, no say in the matter. It just like, I mean, this is like a kind of a feature of uh, the neoliberal era, uh, the end of history, whatever you want to call it. Um, Do you foresee that continuing for the foreseeable future or, um, or is is the pandemic opening up space for mass politics or democratic accountability, whatever we want to call it, to return and actually have some say in the matter? But this is a key point. I mean, I think the short answer to your question is that remains to be seen and it has to be played out and it is a matter of politics. But the, your starting point, I think, is is absolutely spot on. One of the reasons why this essentially conservative policy could take on the gigantic dimensions that it did and could, as it were, lead some people to suggest that this was really a kind of war, World War II-style Keynesianism or something like that, is precisely that there was no risk. There is no political risk. The reason why neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s in its campaigning phase insisted on, say, the independence of central banks was that they had something to fear from democracy. They had something to fear from the organised forces of trade unions and and uh, the working class, that is evidently no longer the world that we're in. And the, the ironic effect of that is that it opens up the managers of crises in the centres of power, like the central banks, to do whatever they think is necessary. Famously, the phrase that hangs over all of this is the phrase used by the famous Italian or European central banker Mario Draghi in 2012, where he said, we'll do whatever it takes. And people he's looking at at the time are a bunch of London hedge funders who are sceptical about the euro, and he's trying to intimidate them. So he says, we'll do whatever it takes, dramatic pause, believe me, it will be enough. So don't bet against the Fed, don't bet against the European Central Bank. That's very much the mood. But the audience there are hedge funders, not trade unionists. If there were, if there was a mass organisation, I think one of the, uh, 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 the one of the questions would be, what would be the limits then of capitalist crisis management? So there's actually kind of a quite complicated balance of, of advantage here to be worked through. And this isn't a surprise. I mean, this has been a classic feature of capitalist crisis management ever since the 20th century when it began in earnest, is as it were, what is the interplay between the technocrats who 
try and keep the wheels on the bus and social forces, parliamentary or extra parliamentary social forces that configure the force field in which they operate. And the moment we're in anyone anyway is one of almost complete disinhibition because, you know, the risks to their action are so slight. You know, you caution against uh, anyone who might be giddy at the thought of, you know, the neoliberal era collapsing uh, because Mm -hmm. of, you know, the what could happen uh, to substitute uh, neoliberalism. Can you discuss that and elaborate on on what the potential uh, negative impact of neoliberalism collapsing could be, especially with the left in the United States, at least, being as powerless as it is at the moment? Well, what goes with the collapse of neoliberalism is neoliberalism's sort of prim, slightly polite edge. And this is frankly not very pronounced in the United States, even at the best of times. It's it's rather more so in, in Europe. Um, but I think that is the worry, right, is that whilst neoliberalism was in a mode of, as it were, trying to define clearly organic bounds for itself and limits, there was a, a shape to it. And we have a vested interest, I think, as, as relatively powerless people in that shape, because those shapes are the laws of the land, commonly recognised rights. And you only have to look at situations where that breaks down, say, Russia in the period after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, where you see power and violence naked uh, and, and bleeding in tooth and claw deployed for the possession of resources to see how dangerous it can be. As a historian who worked previously on the history of Nazi Germany, I'm forever haunted by the analysis of Nazi Germany offered by the Frankfurt School legal theorists who describe fascism, not in its movement phase, but as a regime, as an expression of the collapse of the coherence of the liberal rule of law. And instead, what we end up with is a sort of direct, unmediated relationship between power and money and capital. Now, some people have been tempted to say, "Okay, so we're headed back towards feudalism. I don't think that's, to my mind, a very convincing way of thinking about this. But we are certainly in a space in which everything is to be played for there. And it could be tilted if you think about the force of the antitrust agenda now. It could be tilted in quite a progressive direction. And, you know, you only have to look to China to see how a regime that isn't afraid of knocking heads together, how it can change the balance of force between a powerful regime willing to use the violence, the coercive power of the state against money, how dramatic the consequences can be, at least in the short run. Um, And I think those are the questions which are up for grabs at this particular moment. Um, But broadly speaking, what we are definitely seeing is a sort of increasing incoherence in the ability of law, general forms of regulation to grasp what's going on, either cross-sectionally at any given moment or in time, across time, which is why we see this more and more ad hoc, more and more aggressive, oversized, sort of headless chicken style interventions by the central banks. You mentioned China's um, state power against money. I found it very funny that the Financial Times uh, reacted to it by uh, saying that they were returning to Maoism. Um, and I was like, I just, I just found that pretty funny. <laughs> like, this doesn't. I lived in China. It couldn't be less Maoist. Um, but uh, I, 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 my question is, is about China and about you know, you, you, you mentioned briefly the, this, this, this kind of move that they're doing lately to. Um, to confront some of the power of 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 
of money, business, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, the reactions here in the West to that, but also broadly speaking, just the 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 inevitable, the seeming inevitability of of the overtaking of China of the United States in terms of uh, economic power uh, and and what that'll mean, what that'll mean for the world. Yeah, I think it's really helpful here to separate out different ways of thinking about the economy. I mean, in general, we are indeed in a phase of transition and we are struggling to map it. And it's not just analysts or just interested folks. It's people in the Pentagon are trying to map it. So people with with power. And I think it's useful to distinguish different metrics. There's the GDP story, the GNP story. How big is the Chinese economy and when will it thoroughly overtake the United States in the next 10 years or so, somewhat sooner than before? Then there's the question of, as it were, how does the Chinese regime relate to power concentrations in the hands of individual, let's call them for shorthand purposes, oligarchs, their equivalents of the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Jeff Bezoses of this world. So aggregations of capital in the hands of individuals driven more often than not through platform economies. So that question. And then they're also simultaneously playing a very subtle game with Western capital. So in a sense, I think, and I, this is, a, I think, broadly persuasive analysis, that as tension between the United States and Beijing rises, not really any longer on the trade front, but above all on the geopolitical, on the hard power defense industry type front, what you simultaneously see on the Chinese part is a very active pursuit of money. So finance, Wall Street, Connecticut, the hedge funds, the asset managers are being sucked into China at the same time. And what China is dangling in front of them is wealth management, which isn't the same thing as GDP. GDP is the whole economy. Wealth management is the aggregated wealth of the top 10% of the Chinese society, which at this point is a huge pot of money that BlackRock and the big fund managers in the West would love to have a slice of. So there are these different dynamics working all at the same time. Whilst, of course, also the Chinese working class is struggling com- increasingly competitive relations with new emerging market, low income countries that compete with them in industries like the textiles and the garment sector. So it's an incredibly complex, multidimensional picture, which in some ways is actually opening up what we mean by the economy at all, right? Because on the one hand, it's something that's easily measured in the form of GDP. On the other hand, it's a generator of tech, which is essentially what concerns the soldiers. On the other hand, it's really class wealth, which is what the asset managers are after. And and these are all different forces at work in the same conjuncture. Can you talk about the United States and its perception of China following the pandemic. Um, You know, you talk a little bit about how we really gave China a bit of a win, uh, the West did, in terms of how much the West failed in its response to COVID uh, relative to how China responded to it. Can you discuss uh, what China did right, what the West did wrong, and whether there are any lessons to learn from it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's staggering. I mean, if you if you like soccer, it's as though the Chinese shipped two goals in the first half and then the whistle blew. The other side came out, ran down to their own goal and proceeded to spend the next 45 minutes firing the ball into their own <laughs> net. And at some point, the referee said, you know, I think the Chinese won. I mean, it's insane. I mean, if we'd stopped the clock at the end of February, this would have been the most severe shock that the Chinese regime had suffered since the end of the Cultural Revolution. It was a disaster of their public health management system, The only way they could see to contain it was to shut their economy down, which they did with incredible force. I'll say a bit in a second about how they did it. 
Um, and it's caused a huge disruption in China itself. And China is a profoundly unequal society. There was a very fascinating discussion that bubbled up that had to be immediately repressed at the very highest level. Li Keqiang, the prime minister, raised the issue that there are 600 million low-income Chinese, just as in the United States. The whole issue of precariousness, inequality bubbled up in China too. And at that point, as it were, if you'd stopped the clock there, you would have said disaster for Xi Jinping's regime. How on earth could they have failed to get it right? Look at the price they paid for, for how they screwed up. They have now got it under control, but, you know, no bygones here. This goes in the books as a huge loss. And then Europe happened, and then the United States happened, and the game completely changed. Latin America and, and now spreading to the rest of Asia as well. China's problem now is that they have virtually no herd immunity because they never really had an epidemic in our sense. Um, how they did it is really interesting because there's so many cliches abounding in the West about the regime in China, which clearly we should make no bones about it. It's extremely authoritarian, doesn't respect individual rights in the sense that we understand them. But on the other hand, cannot be reduced to a sort of Xi Jinping centered autocratic top down dictatorship. It's too big a place to work like that. It's like South America, North America, and Europe all added together. It's far too vast, right? So the way it actually operates is mid-level and low-level self-mobilization in a kind of almost ecological system. A signal comes from Beijing, and then everyone has to react. And what's astonishing is how dramatically China reacted. So the place shut itself down. One of the reasons I don't use the phrase lockdown to title the book is that that doesn't really describe what happened. It shut down, hermetically sealed itself, you know, um, plush new private sector uh, housing developments suddenly discover they have a communist party cell and the housing unit shuts down. Villages shut themselves down. Factories do. So it's an extraordinary process to which we simply have no counterpart, right? Because we don't in our Western societies have that kind of cellular organization. And the CCP talks about it as precisely that, a kind of decentralized cellular power. And they've quite deliberately engineered it. I mean, it has its own dynamics, which are quite difficult for them because it can become a runaway process. It's not entirely clear it can be steered. But in a moment like this, it triggered and it really shut the economy quickly, which turned out to be the efficient way of dealing with this. The single thing, I mean, that isn't a transposable lesson. We can't apply that in the West. It's, it's unrealistic. You know, this idea that Chinese authoritarianism can spread just defies history. The single thing we have to learn in the West is about China, not, as it were, from China. It's just if something happens... In a huge Chinese city, 10 million people, very affluent, international airport connections, and Beijing decides they need to shut Beijing down, then we need to react immediately. Because if it matters to Beijing, which is hundreds of miles away from, from Wuhan, then it definitely matters to New York and London too. And yeah. the thing that we were in a kind of fog about was, you know, there's all this talk about Chernobyl. Chernobyl was a tiny town behind the Iron Curtain in the Ukraine, right? That is not Wuhan. Wuhan is a mega 10 million people, very affluent, half of them rich enough to go home or to go on long distance trips for the holidays. Right. So there's just a fundamental I, I say in the book, and it was quoted in The New York Times, that, you know, this is a sign of the failure of the global elite to understand the world they have created. It's as though they just they talk all the time about globalization they travel around the jet around and don't get what this implies. And it implies that if something like that happens in Wuhan, we have immediately to start talking about track, you know, uh, 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 testing and tracing in every single major airport in the entire world immediately, not uh, three months from now, but now. 
And and that sort of alertness, this hair trigger thing, is was just completely absent in that moment. I have to say, like I said, I lived in China, and I, I, the the image that people have in the West, certainly in the United States, of the average Chinese citizen as kind of like a um, pliant. Um, <laughs> Uh, figure who just like whatever the party says, like we, I'm like I, I found just anecdotally in my experience there that they're far less pliant than the average yeah. American. The average American so respects authority way you ever more. Met any Chinese people? It's like have yeah, you actually ever met any Chinese no, people? Yeah. Do they strike you? It's like no. it's such a crazy like. No, I've, I've only ever been there for a week. But in that time, I literally saw people get out of their cars and berate policemen that they thought yeah. weren't doing the right thing. Oh, it was yeah, stunning. Yeah. You get no, arrested yeah. in America, thrown to the ground, have a gun pointed at your head, and you'd be incredibly fortunate you didn't end up dead. Like, <laughs> and it, it's just like it was it, unreal. Now, this isn't to say that there isn't a massive authoritarian regime. Of course, yeah. it is, but but it doesn't function through a series of robots. It isn't 1.4 yeah. billion robots, right? This yeah. is an absurd kind of misunderstanding of how that power yeah. functions. No, it's it oh, totally. I mean, I, I just I think it's completely opposite of what the people here think about the Chinese people. I just it's completely backwards. But um, I guess the last question I think we could wrap on is um, speaking about our institutions, the institutions that uh, govern the world, the institutions that uh, led to a series of crises that we've seen in, in the last few decades. Can they be reformed, the EU, the, the IMF, the central banks, all that stuff? Can they be reformed or or, or, or just burn it all down? <laughs> I know you guys like the burn it all down answer. No, no, no. no. Uh, actually, Bosker, Bosker does not like the burn it all down. He's, but, but, he's I mean, very... like, well, I know that's the temptation, right? And this is the sort of... But, but the alternative is completely implausible, right? The idea yeah. that there's going to be some sort of grand rewrite, the sort of Bretton Woods fantasy. I, I, much as I love and sympathize with the people who articulate this kind of view, I just find it very unpersuasive. So the sort of politics I'm fascinated by and interested in is the sort that works from within this structure to try and make effectual change that pushes us in a better direction. And that definitely needs to call on the full force of extra parliamentary mobilisation. There's no question, I think, for instance, that the mass mobilisation around climate in the Europe in particular changed the debate in Europe. Even in you know people as deeply conservative and unimaginative as Ursula von der Leyen at the head of the president, you know, the European Commission gets it. So I think it's some combination of those things, but I don't think we should imagine that there is the prospect of the move to greater stability. I mean, we are in a situation of, I mean, you know, folks on the left love Gramsci. They love the interregnum phrase. They love this <laughs> idea that we you know we're between two different powers and this is a time for morbid symptoms or monsters, depending on your translation. And, I, you know, monsters is absolutely right. The, the only quibble I have with that is that it presupposes that there's some new order on the other side of this. Right, that after the demise of the old order, a new one will come. And and Gramsci was a bona fide, you know, revolutionary intellectual lingering away his days in Mussolini's jail. So he is entitled to, you know, that vision in a way that it doesn't seem to me we are in any way entitled. Um, we may live in a world of monsters right now, but I don't think that that means that we should anticipate, as it were, some more orderly evolution to come. Uh Thank you so much for taking time. You've been generous with your time with us today. And uh, I'm looking forward to your uh, forthcoming book uh, on climate change, the one you're working on. And we're, 
you were working on prior to uh, the release of your latest book, Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Um, you do great work, and I'm just so grateful that you took the time today to, to speak with us uh, mm. about COVID, the economy, and uh, what we can learn from how uh, various countries have responded to it. Adam, thank you again, and hopefully you. you'll come back soon. Always. Producer Kale says we are Kautskians, not Gramscians on this show. All right. I, I got to represent. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I appreciate Adam. I mean, Adam sounds a little bit like a Kautskian in, in those final remarks. That it's, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a massive, you know, class struggle parliamentary, parliamentary and, uh, movement that it's, uh, you know, you have to, you have to have a combination of the, uh, the party in an office and the working class forces in the workplaces. That's, that's good old Kautskyanism. That's, that sounds like twos. I don't know. Um, anyways, I'm here because, uh, at the end of the show, we do super chats. If you don't already know, and there's a couple couple comments that I can throw up, but um, throw out, throw up, throw out. But if you have a if you have a super chat, if you have a question that you want us to answer before we go um, at the top of the hour, please send it now. Um, if you're a member, you can just ask a question. You don't have to send us any money. You already did that. We thank you for that. Um, but um, a couple a couple that we got earlier that weren't question <clears throat> excuse me that weren't questions. Jerry Ty had said. Uh, that was a fantastic segment referring to Anna's segment, um, how competitions leads to monopolies under a capitalist system. Never thought of it that way. Thank you for that. Um, thanks, Jerry. Uh, and Nick, <laughs> Nick Carducci had earlier said that poorness is equal to poverty and equality. Uh, yeah, basically. Um, or not. Yeah. Yeah. So um, or maybe it was supposed to be a. Maybe it was a, an equation. Of, sorry, poverty is equal to poverty over uh, equality. So it's there's a numerator denominator going on there. Um, uh, Eclectic had said, hi, Anna mentions that her mother watches 2IT and sometimes tries to take on trolls in the comments. So she also watched weekends. God. And before, before you answer, Nando, does your mother watch weekends or other work? She does. And it's extremely funny because her comments directly above your comment. Yeah, she she comments all the time. She's in the chat. She's trolling the chat. So be careful what you say about me because she'll get you. No, let me just say, Nando's mom is incredible. Like, I met her for the first time um, last week or the week before, and she is my kind of woman. She's, like, fiery. She's outspoken, super chic. She's great. She's so great. She's extremely chic. She is. <laughs> Um, yeah, Kale, your mom watches the show. Yes, I don't know. I haven't oh, yeah, seen her in a while, but <laughs> yeah, she <you're>... got bored. <laughs> she got yeah, bored. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, my mom does watch this show. I, I haven't seen her comment in uh, the Jacobin videos, mostly because uh, we have wonderful moderators that usually get the trolls out of the way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I found out that my mom learned how to comment on YouTube fairly recently, and I was uh, mortified. By it. Uh, she should she should not do that. <laughs> it's a good follow up to uh, to the Adam Two's interview on how to understand the global economy and the global economic yeah. meltdown of 2020. Of just like how, how are your moms doing? <laughs> they're 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 hanging in. I think. Um, uh, so I guess we're we're kind of just waiting for one more second if other people have questions. 
but so uh, kale while we wait um yeah. and we do have like we got to go at, at noon unfortunately mm-hmm. but to start give us your questions uh because we do have a, a hard out today um i wanted you to kind of I feel like I quickly glossed over because Adam was waiting for the interview to start. So I glossed over the point regarding how, you know, the inevitable outcome uh, of competition is monopolies, but it doesn't just end there. Then you have the right, like if you have one dominant company, then you, you know, anyway, do you want to elaborate on the Vivek Chibber uh, quote that I took out of the (laughs) segment? And I feel really guilty about that because it was a really great point, but I just felt like it was going to take way too much time to, to get into that. The typical occurrence on, on weekends as I stuff in another Vivek Chiver quote, just, (laughs) I'm just like highlighting those parts of his work that haven't already been quoted on the show. But um, just the, uh, I think it's, it's important to, when talking about monopolies, obviously I think Anna's correct that um, it just, it should be obvious that like in the process of competition, because people are going to win out and the losers are going to effectively die out, uh, you're going to have um, two processes uh, using Marx's language. The first is concentration, which is that there's greater capital in the, um, like the, the scale of the blocks of capital, the factories, the businesses, the amount of machinery, the amount of people working there, that scale is going to increase over time. And then in addition to that, you're going to have uh, centralization, which is greater ownership over greater blocks of capital in the economy. Um, and that is an inevitable process. And that inevitably will lead to more and more wealth and um, in these like blocks, these like profitable firms and, and you know, uh, wealth producing uh, entities in the hands of a smaller number of people. Um, but what like Marx has said and what not enough Marxists since Marx have said um, is that that process actually doesn't lead to the diminu- diminution of competition. It actually leads to the accentuation that, uh, again, you look at like these massive companies, like you look at Amazon and Walmart and, you know, um, and some other smaller competitors, but like these companies are at war and they're doing everything they can to lower their costs, not because they want to, they would love to jack up their costs as high as they can because they want to make as much money as they can, but they have to lower their costs because they are in fact at war with their competitor. And if they don't lower their costs, their competitor will. And so part of just like how that process plays out over time is that um, in most industries, Monopolies will emerge at times, and over time they will fall apart. The, the Sam Gindin quote that uh, that you read, um, where you know there's big companies that at one point probably had a far greater share of the market, are just completely mm-hmm. gone now, mm-hmm. and that's just the normal flow of things. And, and crises help kind of sweep out some of the old, but it's a normal process of of capitalists over the, like took a snapshot every ten years. The top, and when you do, like I mean, people do this when you take a snapshot of the top you know, 50 companies every 10 years, it's radically changing over time. Um, mm-hmm. And so the fact that a company has monopoly control today, relatively speaking, doesn't mean they always will because, uh, you know, the fact that they are in a, a sector that's profitable means that other investors are going to look to that and say, hey, I actually would like to make some money in this sector. seems like there's a lot of profit to be made here. And so they will start, you know, moving in in that sector and we'll try to take up as much market share as they can. And then over time you get this process of profit equalization across the board. And it's not a perfect, it's not everyone ends up at the same profit levels. It's constantly overshooting and undershooting, but that if you're an investor, your mindset is I need to make a profit. 
and I want to make it as cheaply as possible. So I'm going to look to, I don't give a crap what I'm making. I'm going to look into which sectors are in fact profitable today and I'm going to move in there. And so over a 10 year period, it's constantly changing. Right. And, and, you know, capitalists will, will talk about how that's a great thing, right? Um, that that's how the market is supposed to work, but understand, well, it depends on what the commentary is. So if you're focusing on the monopoly component of it, uh, they'll argue, no, 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 this is not a product of capitalism. This is crony capitalism. Or they'll try, they'll try to label it something completely different as if it's not uh, an inherent part of the system. But regardless, uh, whether it's in the monopoly phase or the two major players competing with one another phase, um, the workers get shafted. Right. No matter what, the workers get shafted. Um, and so they're at a disadvantage in regard to the incentives for poor working conditions, lower wages. Um, and they're also at a disadvantage when it comes to, uh, in the case of monopolies, the lack of jobs. Right. So um, in both uh, in both areas of the cycle. Uh, the workers uh, really do deal with those disadvantages. And on top of it, what I loved about the Jacobin piece uh, by Ginden was the emphasis on how it fragments labor, right? And how it leads to less solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. so just one last point on this, and then we'll get to the, the final super chats. Um, because I think it's worth saying for those who haven't spent time looking at any of this, part of the, the problem is that, so like the, um, the right will make that case that, uh, if you see monopoly, um, you know, it's not really capitalism. Like there's something no, well, Elizabeth Warren makes that point. Yeah, yeah. she does. Yeah. Right, right. So this is the thing that like there's left wing versions of monopoly, too. And part of the problem is that for most most of the 20th century, the critique coming from both the um, not Keynes himself, but the Keynesians and the post Keynesians, as well as the Marxists, Almost all of them across the board have uh, have described capitalism in the 20th century as something called monopoly capitalism. Uh, this is, you know, Lenin is a big proponent of this. A lot of the the, the, the big kind of classic socialists from like 100 years ago were proponents of, of this. But um, again, like post-Keynesians, not Keynes himself, but people like Kolesky and others, um, their argument is that capitalism has entered into something called the monopoly phase and that uh, when it's in the monopoly phase, corporations are no longer really in competition in the same way they were before. There's sometimes they slip some of these definitions a bit, but that this is where you can have monopoly price jackups. And the thing is that like when political scientists and economists, it's mostly economists, when economists actually did this research in the seventies, trying to say like, is, did, capitalism, in fact, turned into something called monopoly capitalism, did competition cease, they found zero evidence for it. And so part of the challenge now is like, the fact that a lot of like the intellectual lineage that has like led up to this point, um, has affirmed this idea of something called monopoly capitalism, where they stop at the, the uh, they stop by saying, well, capitalism leads to monopoly. And now we're just in total monopoly control. Everything is a, a monopoly. And they they miss out on the second half, which is that uh, monopolies, aside from parts of the economy that like you just, there's no way for a competitor to get in there once someone has monopoly control. There's certain small, as- well, I don't want to say small, but there's certain aspects of the economy that definitely are that. But the majority mm-hmm. of it is competitive and has remained competitive and it's only gotten more competitive. 
And so, uh, you know, the 70s is also when the new left fell apart. And so we're kind of the first left to like take this up again and have to like actually use something with this theoretical work. And so it's, 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 I think something where the left still has like, um, speaking very broadly, like the, the left broadly has to, I think, uh, rethink, um, you know, our, our understanding of competition and of monopoly control. And, um, and this, and, and we have to get rid of this idea that like the capitalist class is somehow like, you know, all best friends and they all want to, you know, it's all of them against all of us, like, because they're friends or something, they're not, they're at war. They want to kill each other. The problem yeah. is that that process of them trying to kill each other also destroys our lives in the same process. Right. Um, Anyways, sorry. So I had to make, I don't know why I had to make that point, but um, uh, last couple super chats that we'll get to. Um, uh, N Starks uh, said, you guys should have an FD. I don't know who that is, um, but he's a sociologist, highlights problems, progressive left cir- circles. Um, I will look oh. into it. Um, thanks for the super chat. Um, and uh uh, Champagne Vibra says, do you think the deal we made with Saudis allowing them to keep their faith was hard to do given the that evangelicals in America also want a theocracy? Nando, you want to? Short answer is no. And I don't think, I just don't think that factored into the decision at all. That they just didn't, they didn't care what was going on in Saudi Arabia, like internal, you know, there's, yeah, whatever. Go ahead, do it. Yeah. That's, a lot of that's just kind of it's it's cash rules everything around me. It's it's money and power. It's not really yeah. like uh, scriptural differences or something. Um, and um, Borhav had asked, mm. rather than socialism, is liber is left liberal ter- no. libertarianism a better label? Very no. Distance from the Does the left libertarians are different? Is a different thing, and they yeah. you know like they for example would be against the vaccine mandate. If you're left libertarian, you know, Mm. because it's like some form of like state coercion or whatever. And it's just not dude. Or or a million other things like, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, You don't have to use something as controversial as a vaccine mandate. You can use a million other things that the state requires. um, And yeah, I don't know. That's that stuff is just it don't work. I mean, look at the uh, I'm not even going to go into it. I got to (laughs) run. All right. Um, I just, my like real quick two thoughts is just like the, you know, people get confused by the labels. You should try to avoid labels when you can. Like I'm a socialist because my politics are in the lineage of socialists who have advocated for certain things, like the expansion of democracy into the workplace. Um, But it's, to me, it doesn't really matter to get like too nitty gritty about details in like your official label or something. So I'm a Maoist. All right. (laughs) all right you heard it here first (laughs) all right everyone thank you so much for watching thank you to producer kale um always hitting us up with the facts and the fact quotes for our decode segments we're always grateful for that and uh yeah thank you for watching uh make sure you subscribe to the channel if you haven't already and to the magazine and uh we love you there's nothing more to say have a great weekend we'll see you next week later bye